Uh, it's time for some lanyap, y'all. Welcome to the Canadian Greenfield Technologies Hemp Train Tour. Over the course of this video, we will show you the hemp train in operation from hemp straw to high value products. Canadian Greenfield Technologies have been in business since 2002 and in the hemp industry since 2011. Hemp has been grown legally in Canada since 1998, though mainly for seed. It's important to note that any attempts to build a profitable business making low value commodities from hemp straw have consistently failed in North America. We believe and we have now commercially proven that the path to building a profitable business in the hemp space involves the manufacture of high-value products for multi-billion dollar markets using innovative technologies. What's required is high-value, high-volume markets and applications with new processing and manufacturing technologies to meet this need. The Hemtrain Advanced Processing Plant is such a technology and we're happy to show you our, pro our processing plant in full production. The hemp train is not simply a decorticator, it's a mini factory created by our unique team of engineers. Unlike destructive hammer and roller mills, hemp train is the only processing system in the world capable of separating hemp from straw bales into long strong bast fiber, clean size specified herd and nutrient rich green microfiber without any pre or post processing requirements. Due to the unique kinematics and control algorithms of our proprietary patented hemp train technologies, these valuable streams maintain their structural integrity, be, uh, being produced without significant damage. We, unlike others, do not produce dust or consider dust a production stream. The start of the hemp train advanced processing plant is the baled straw opener. This serves as both the feedstock infeed and the hemp train control station. The baled straw opener uses a proprietary and patented technology to open straw from the dense state of baled material. This optimized throughput ensures that all straw is in the condition best suited for its further processing. It is capable of opening large bales, square round, fresh green or dry. This interface is the control for the whole system. It allows for both fine-tuning of system parameters and simple profile loading with single button start-stop for the operators. What I just did was load the dry square bailed profile and simply hit start to start the whole system. Open straw is transferred from the decortic 
to the decorticator from the baled straw opener. Using our proprietary decortication technology, the fiber remains undamaged, retaining its integrity and length. Here's an example of our bass fiber from the hemp train in comparison with bass fiber from the hammer mill. As you can see, the cleanliness, strength, and length of the hemp train bass fiber means that it can be more easily cleaned, aligned, and cut to a specific size with a narrow size distribution. This is essential to engineered materials that need reproducible properties. With the hemp train, fiber length is now limited only by the feedstock, not the processing equipment. All ham trains include a state-of-the-art, explosion-mitigating, self-cleaning dust collector. As we do not produce dust, this is used to capture all nuisance dust uh, coming from agricultural field feedstock. As decortication should only act on feedstock containing bass fiber, Everything that is not bass fiber from the bale of straw opener and everything removed from decortication is combined into a single stream, passed through a metal trap towards further separation. These units are where the remaining material is separated. In this fraction, you see green microfiber. This is unique to the hemp train and not available as a product fraction in any other system. The green microfiber is the most nutrient-dense fraction and is therefore used for infusion or extraction. Our green microfiber is used in everything from garden products to beauty products to animal products. Over here is the herd stream. This module is capable of sizing herd to anything from two inches to an eighth of an inch with a narrow size distribution. As you can see, hemp train processing results in clean, discrete herd particles, not possible from conventional processors without significant refinement steps and their subsequent losses. Here is herd processed by a hemp train versus that processed by a hammer mill. Due to the high internal surface area and the cleanliness of the hemp train produced hemp herd, it is highly absorbent and ideal for food preservation, garden products, animal bedding, and cat litter. In fact, here's a comparison of our Hemp Alta brand premium cat litter against a readily available pelletized hemp cat litter made using a hammer mill. Our herd is absorbent and maintains its structure, while pelletized dust does not. A powdered additive mixer is included with the herd so that any dry, flowable additive can be added and intermixed with the herd stream. This means that whether the whether you want to add a fertilizer for soil replacement or a color for branding, the herd can exit the hemp train as a finished product ready for bagging. As before, 
Operation is as simple as start-stop. In summary, the hemp train is a factory capable of making high-value products for multi-billion dollar markets. Whether it's bass fiber for textiles, composites, or structural reinforcements such as our Enforce Fiber Reinforcement for Concrete, ASTM and ACI compliant, or clean, absorbent, antibacterial herd for garden products, food preservation, or pet products such as our Hemp Alta branded premium hemp cat litter and pet bedding, or green microfiber for beauty, infusion, extraction, or garden products such as our Hemp Pack Soil Amendment, Hemp Train products are high value and high volume. Thank you for watching our tour and we hope it was informative and eye-opening. The team here at Canadian Greenfield Technologies will continue to do what we do best using our proven engineering expertise acquired over many years of developing hemp processing technologies to expand our impact on the hemp industry overall. For more information, including videos, specifications, white papers, or to purchase a hemp train, please visit our website or contact us in person. Have a great day. Sun Intuitive Dynamic Glass is an innovative and intelligent glass product that can be used in both commercial and residential settings. Using heat from direct sunlight, Sun Intuitive technology tints clients' windows to automatically block heat and glare. On days of intense sunlight, when they might normally pull a shade or blind with traditional windows, Sun Intuitive glass gradually darkens, leaving their view uh, to the outside unobstructed. Sun Intuitive Dynamic Glass allows clients to be comfortable behind the glass since it blocks up to 90% of the solar energy. As less solar energy enters the client's home, their AC does not have to work as hard, saving them energy and money in the process. Sun Intuitive technology reduces interior glare while maximizing daylight and preserving your client's view of the outdoors. Additionally, it, it eliminates those harmful UV rays protecting your client's uh, sustainable furniture and flooring, and because Sun Intuitive Glass always incorporates laminated glass, it reduces the outside noise and offers forced entry protection so your client's family are much safer. Easy installation makes Sun Intuitive Dynamic Glass a great choice for replacement or new construction windows. All right, well, welcome everybody to Introduction to Natural Hempcrete Construction Methods. This course is approved for one hour in Continuing Education Units, AIA, HSW, GBCI. AIBD, uh, Certified Green Professional, Nary Green, and Certified Green Home Professional. I am going to be your moderator today. My name is Brett Little. I'm the Executive Director here at the Green Home Institute. The Green Home Institute does have a mission to make healthier and more sustainable choices in the renovation and construction of the places we live. Um, I'm really excited to uh, introduce you to the speaker today, Chris Magwood. He is obsessed with making the best, most energy efficient, carbon sequestering, beautiful, and inspiring buildings without wrecking the whole darn planet in the attempt. 
Chris is currently the executive director of the Endeavor Center, a not-for-profit sustainable building school in uh, Peterborough, Ontario. The school runs two full-time certificate programs, sustainable new construction and sustainable renovation, and hosts many hands-on workshops annually. Chris has authored numerous books on sustainable building, including The Essential Hemp Creek Construction, Making Better Buildings, More Straw Bale Building, and he's co-editor of the Sustainable Building Essential series from New Society Publishers and is a past editor of The Last Straw Journal, an international quarterly of straw bale and natural building. I love that name. He has contributed articles to numerous publications on topics related to sustainable building and maintains a blog entitled Thoughts on Building. In 1998, he co-founded the Camel's Back Construction and over eight years helped to design or build more than 30 homes and commercial buildings mostly with straw bales and often with renewable energy systems. Chris is an active speaker, workshop instructor in Canada and internationally. So with that, Chris, uh, we're real excited to have you and go ahead and take it away. Okay, great. Well, thanks. And uh, thanks to everybody for showing up. This is my, uh, my first time presenting in this forum. So uh, I hope it all goes smoothly and uh, I really appreciate you, uh, you signing on and, uh, and listening into this. So um, I guess we'll start right away um, with what it is that uh, attracted me to hempcrete and attracts a lot of people to hempcrete, and uh, and that is that the the hemp portion of the hempcrete is a is an annually renewable plant-based material that has quite a few desirable thermal and moisture properties. Um, and can have a, a reasonable cost uh, as an insulation material. And a, probably most importantly, um, a very straightforward construction process in that you'll see as we go through, um, unlike a lot of other sort of natural alternative building systems, uh, hempcrete aligns really well with conventional frame construction um, in that it's, a, it's an infill insulation that relies on, on sort of standard frame walls um, in its construction. So it's, it's one of the few alternatives that um, sort of melds really nicely with conventional um, framing. Anybody who has probably spent any time at all uh, looking into hempcrete, especially in the, uh, the online world, you may get the impression that, uh, you know, if we all just switch to hempcrete tomorrow, um, the world would be saved and children would be happy and, and you know, everything would be great. Um, it's not really that miracle material. Um, there are a lot of really good things about it, but, you know, as with all materials, there are also limitations and, and drawbacks. Um, we'll talk a little bit about um, the carbon neutrality of hempcrete. Uh, it, it, you know, it has a lot of great properties if you're looking to, to build a low-carbon building but sometimes the, the claims uh, around its carbon neutrality can be a little bit overstated. Um, and a lot of people seem to mistake, uh, I guess because the word crete is in hempcrete, that somehow it's a replacement for concrete, and it's not. It's not a structural material. Um, you can formulate it in a way that it's kind of semi-structural, and we'll look at some of those formulations but it's certainly not, you're not going to build a skyscraper out of it. You're not going to build um, structural columns out of it or anything like that. So it, it is largely a, an, an insulation material. 
the, the essential uh, components of hempcrete um, is the, the hemp itself, and the hemp is um, the, the core of the hemp plant. So the, the fiber, which is kind of the, the desirable part of the hemp plant in, uh, for most growers, is stripped and removed and sold. And then the kind of woody core of the plant is what's left over, and, uh, and that's what we want for hempcrete. And you can see a little mound of it there in the, uh, the middle of the, the, uh, the picture. And then that's mixed with a, a lime-based binder. So that's a, a calcium carbonate, um, the same kind of lime that you would use in sort of mortaring or, or plaster work, um, and water. And you mix those three things together, and you get a, an insulation that's largely used as a wall insulation, but we'll, we'll look at some other applications for it as well. So we'll dive a little deeper into, uh, into the material side of things. Um, the lime binder itself, um, it needs to be lime that has a hydraulic set. So a lot of the, the plastering and mortaring limes cure by uh, exposure to air. They, they recarbonize, and so when you use them uh, in a thick application like hempcrete, where you might have a 10, 12, 14, even 16-inch deep wall, um, the middle portion of that line, the stuff in the center of the wall, will not sort of be exposed to enough air to actually cure, so only that the outside edges will. So hydraulic limes, um, as the name implies, sort of have a, a hydraulic set, which means that they, uh, when mixed with water, the, the interaction with water chemically uh, provides a portion of the set, and then they continue to, uh, to carbonize over time. Where hempcrete really got going was in uh, in Europe, in, in France, and England mostly, and their um, natural hydraulic lime is a is a fairly common uh, building material. It's something that's widely available, manufactured in in both countries, and you can see a couple of the, the products there. The the Saint Austier is uh, from France, and the Tradical is from England. And so the hempcrete builders in that part of the world tend to go for those prepackaged hydraulic lime products. You can do that here. There are some importers of them, but they're, uh, they tend to be extremely expensive. And one of the things that if you've heard that hempcrete can be really expensive, that's one of the reasons why is uh, you know importing a product that's already a bit of a premium product in Europe by the time you bring it to North America, pay for the shipping and, uh, you know, pay for distribution in really small quantities, the, the price gets really high. What we tend to do is use um, more widely available North American produced lime. So there's a picture of a Graymont bag there, but whatever sort of uh, type N hydrated lime you would normally use for mortar work or, or, um, or plaster work. And then we mix it with um, posalon, which is um, a material that when added to lime, gives it a hydraulic set, and metacalin is the most common uh, posalon that you can get your hands on here. So that's a, a kaolin clay that's been fired at a really high temperature. And we'll look at the proportions of how you mix those things a bit later. But um, essentially, most of the um, most of the, the hempcrete work that, that we've done here in North America is is using some form of, of that kind of mix. So that's the that's the lime portion. That's the binder. 
Um, so that's what we're going to use to um, coat each of the little pieces of hemp, and uh, that gives it um, protection and also allows them to sort of stick together. And that's how we're going to make this material uh, bind in a way that it you know, keeps its shape in the wall or attic or floor or wherever we're using it. So the other component, the uh, the herd or the, the shiv, as it's sometimes called in Europe, um, like I said, it's the core of the hemp plant. So the, the seed has been removed, if that's why it's being grown. The fiber has been removed. And we're left with uh, the sort of pithy part uh, from the middle of the plant. And what makes hemp interesting, you know, some people, when they see that photo, they think, well, I could just do this with wood chips or, you know, other, other kind of chip cellulose materials. And what sort of makes hemp interesting in this application is that it's a very lightweight uh, core. So it's, a, it's an extremely um, porous, hollow, there's sort of more air space than there is cellulose in there. And so it's, a, it's an extremely lightweight uh, plant material. And, uh, and that's what makes it so desirable. Um, because of its, um, you know, lack of availability, especially in the U.S., um, we're also looking at uh, other plants that, that could provide the same qualities. Um, for instance, uh, sunflower stalks, traditional artichoke stalks um, have a very similar density, and uh, we're actually just starting to do some experiments here to see if, if those uh, would work in the same context. But, um, but we know that the hemp works. It's got a, a good long history of uh, proving that it works, and so um, that's what the, the focus of this, this talk will be. The herd, um, ideally we want sort of pieces between a half to an inch in length, um, dust-free, um, the fiber has been stripped. It's sort of, there's inevitably some fiber in there with the hemp, but um, sometimes it's, uh, there can be a little bit too much. It makes it too dense. Um, so a nice clean, a nice clean version of hemp. You can get hemp from suppliers who prepare it specifically to, um, to be used in hempcrete, and that's really the ideal way to go. Um, having it sort of doing your own chipping and shredding or having like a local farmer do it, that can definitely work, but, you know, there will be uh, a bunch of extra effort involved in, uh, you know, removing the, the fines and the particulate and the dust so that uh, you get the nice uh, bigger pieces that, that contribute to a lightweight mix. So of all the, the properties of hempcrete, um, I think its moisture handling capabilities are what uh, draw me to the material and, and why we incorporate it into our buildings. Uh, you know, we work with a lot of other plant-based materials at, at Endeavor Center, including, you know, straw bale, straw clay. Um, there are all kinds of uh, bat insulations, uh, conventional cellulose insulation. So all of these sort of plant cellulose-based materials um, have quite similar properties. What makes the hempcrete unique is that because it's being coated in lime, um, lime is, a, is an antimicrobial, uh, an antifungal, and so should the wall get saturated with water, um, you know, a, a plumbing leak, a roof leak, a flood, those sorts of things, um, hempcrete is extremely resilient in, in those cases. Um, it keeps its shape uh, because once the lime has gone back to being limestone, once it's hardened up, um, the material is very solid and the, uh, 
although you have a lot of cellulose material in the wall because it's all wrapped in this lime mixture, um, it's incredibly resilient to wetting and drying and, um, you know, makes it a, a plant material that's quite attractive to use in, you know, lots of different climates. Uh, it's as, you know, good in sort of hot, humid climates as it is in, in sort of cold, rainy climates. And uh, the, the, the lightweight structure of the hemp plant means that it has a, a huge amount of pore space in each uh, piece of hemp chip and that gives it a lot of moisture storage capability too. So um, when you're looking at um, moisture migrating through a wall, the, um, the amount of moisture that the, the hemp material itself can take on before there's anything close to condensation um, is much greater with hemp than, than any other material. So the, the moisture handling capabilities are really, um, for me, you know, the, the, the main attraction to using this material. And like Brett said, feel free to uh, type questions in as I go, um, and I can stop and discuss things in more detail if, if that's appropriate. And if not, Chris, I'll, I'll I didn't, kind of... um, I didn't know if you're going to get to this yet, so I, I didn't bring it up. But um, are you going to be talking about sort of the uh, um, uh, the dry out period and, and risk of closing up walls that are still wet? Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that a bit later, sort of looking at the, the installation side of things. And um, as far as, uh, um, do, do you have any recommendations that we can discuss later about um, suppliers of, of SHIV around around the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, I'll look at, at supply uh, towards okay. the end as well. Yeah. Okay, great, great. All right, we'll get to those later then. Thanks, everyone. Okay, so... Um, the, the thermal performance of, of hempcrete, um, again, this is something that you'll often see kind of overstated um, on the internet. Uh, people like to ascribe this material sometimes some kind of magical properties. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is, you know, if you do uh, actual, um, you know, ASTM style testing on this, you get uh, a steady state R value of between sort of one and a half to two per inch. So it's not it's not the greatest uh, insulator in the world. You can see there that, you know, um, the, the kind of mix that we use in the wall, um, we're getting R16 out of an eight inch wall, 24 out of a 12 inch wall, or, or 32 out of a 16 inch wall. Um, so it's, you know, while it's certainly possible to sort of meet or surpass code, um, the, the exact properties that made it so ideal in the previous slide, the, the addition of the lime, um, which is what gives it its great moisture handling capabilities, that the density that the lime adds is, is sort of what, um, what robs it of its, um, of its uh, insulation value. And so you can see there um, in this chart um, the, the mixed densities on the left-hand side, you know, as you make the, the material more dense and you'll look at um, how you do that. Uh, you can sort of choose to make a, a lighter or a more dense mix, but but as the mix gets denser, obviously the, the R value goes down and uh, and then we'll, um, yeah, there are places where you might want that, say, you know, under a slab, you might want that material to be more dense to, uh, to be able to handle a load. Uh, in an attic where you don't even care if it keeps its own shape, you can go for a really lightweight mix.
So like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, hempcrete is not a replacement for, for concrete. Um, however, you can formulate mixes um, that have some structural properties. The photograph there shows um, some uh, sub-slab hempcrete insulation going down. So it's got, you know, that mix has enough strength to, um, to be able to, uh, to handle the, the uh, distributed loads of that slab, no problem. Um, but like I said in the previous slide, as you know, as you make those mixes more dense, uh, the insulation value also goes down. So you're kind of always looking for a balance of you know what's the uh, the, the least amount of structure you're requiring from this insulation, uh, which will get you your your best R value. Um, fire properties. Um, it has not been tested to any North American standards yet. Uh, we have been able to get our buildings past uh, our very stringent code here in Ontario, Canada, uh, by showing the sort of equivalency of, of European fire tests. And there are quite a number of those um, all done to, uh, obviously, to European standards. They're not quite the same as, as ASTM, but um, we've been able to, you know, show that to building departments. And uh, when they see that, you know, it's easily passed 75-minute uh, European burn tests, on a number of occasions in a number of countries, um, all to the same testing standards. But that's usually been uh, been fine for us to uh, to get it approved here. So the the environmental benefits again, if you're if you're researching concrete online, this is um, the kind of stuff that you'll you'll hear about. And uh, some of it is true, and some of it is sometimes uh, a little bit exaggerated, but um, the hemp production um, is low intensity and, and relatively low impact, and by that what people mean is quite often they're able to, farmers are able to grow it um, with either uh, fewer or absolutely no pesticides or herbicides. So it's a, it is, it is a weed, um, and it grows, it jumps up quickly in the spring, and uh, it, it, it grows fast, so it tends to choke out competitors. And uh, there aren't uh, a lot of um, insects or other pests that, that tend to disturb it. So, um, you know, in comparison to some other crops or lots of other crops, um, there's often a lot less input into um, into the hemp plant than than other ag crops. The the herd, that inner portion of the plant that we're interested in using for hempcrete, um, is also secondary to the seed or fiber production. So. Um, you know, if you're if you're sort of calculating the the impacts of farming it, um, we're actually using the byproduct. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a way of uh, making sure that you can use the the whole plant and not just the uh, the seed or the fiber. Um, its production doesn't sort of cause any byproducts or industrial waste. The carbon sequestration. Um, I think I've got a slide that that sort of um, formulates that a bit later on. But um, as with any plant-based material. Um, you know, about 50% of the weight of your hemp herd is literally carbon. And so that carbon that's been, you know, pulled, the CO2 is pulled out of the atmosphere and, uh, and, and sort of added to the, uh, to the makeup of the plant itself. And so if we're kind of, the plant's taking that out of the atmosphere and we're bundling it up and putting it in the wall for, you know, a, a good long time, 50, 100, 200 years, um, then that's that's carbon that's been um, you know removed from the atmospheric cycle. So 
uh, it sort of has a, a positive effect that way in terms of uh, carbon and climate change. There's little to no on-site waste or offcuts. It's a, it's a loose mix material that you're you're sort of packing into the area that you want to uh, insulate, and so um, you just make as much as you need. And uh, if there's any left over, um, it can just be composted. There's there's no need for it to go to landfill. And it does have really good indoor air quality properties. Um, the combination of the, the porosity of the plant and the antifungal nature of the lime um, means it's it's uh, it's really clean. It's not offcasting anything, and uh, it's not sort of emitting any toxins into your building or, or introducing anything that that's uh, anything less than food grade. So those are all you know great uh, environmental benefits. Um, but there are some uh, caveats to that, and, and this is the stuff that sometimes the, uh, the uh, online um, proponents of hempcrete don't like to talk about, uh, and I don't think there are reasons to, to not use it, but, but they are things to keep in mind, and that is that the, the production of the lime um, is both energy and carbon intensive. You're harvesting limestone, you're burning it at a high temperature, um, and you're, you know, creating a, a bunch of uh, carbon emissions and, and other emissions in that burning process. Advocates of hempcrete will sort of say, well, you know, the, the lime actually recarbonizes, and that's true as it, as it you know, turns back into limestone. Uh, that process is reversed and the CO2 gets drawn back into, uh, into the lime. Um, but that, that process is not 100%, uh, uh, depending on how thick the wall is. Um, you know, test show it's sort of reabsorbing somewhere between like maybe 25 and 75 percent of the CO2, and uh, it doesn't at all address the CO2 that was emitted uh, from the fuel that was used to burn that rock. So um, you'll see later on in the slideshow we'll actually quantify this, and, and overall the material is a net carbon sequesterer, but uh, unlike other plant materials, if you're using cellulose or straw or, you know, cork or bamboo or any of those things, um, because they don't have the lime, um, their sequestration levels are actually higher. Another caveat is that large-scale hemp production does uh, typically use high quantities of fertilizer, so that obviously has environmental implications. Um, the plant grows anywhere from sort of 8 to 12 feet tall in a season uh, and, and clearly takes a lot of um, takes a lot of uh, nutrients out of the soil in, in, in order to be able to do that. And uh, unless you're finding organically grown hemp, which is, uh, I have not been able to source anything like that in North America, um, there is that fertilizer issue. And also, as I was talking about the lime earlier on, if you want to use natural hydraulic lime instead of formulating your own, um, that only comes from European sources and, and clearly there's a an environmental um, impact to, uh, to to bringing that from Europe. Um, Chris, you had mentioned, and I was going to bring it up on the organic side. Is it is the one of the barriers just simply because of all the fertilizer needed? They haven't been able to find organic approved. Um, you know what I mean? Fertilizers to to certify the hemp. You think that's Kind of I, well, I think a big part of it is right now that you know the the main um, the main use for hemp um, is the fiber, and 
so it's not really a it's not really a food product and so you know people aren't that concerned you know that the end users of the fiber aren't that concerned about organic growth um, and so there's really no drive to um, you know there's nothing in it for the farmer to grow an organic hemp um, so I think that's that's a big part of it um, but it would also take some pretty healthy crop rotation to you know to be able to do hemp uh, organically um, you know, I mean, that said, it's, it's, you know, it's taking a similar level of fertilizer to, say, uh, corn or, or any other kind of tall, tall plant that, uh, that has to feed a lot of growth in one season. I know um, um, some green builders look at sustainable manufacturing. So, I mean, you know, that, that could be one of the... It could be, I think, yeah. when you, when you look at it, you know, the even though there there is some fertilizer use on the hemp plant, if you were to sort of put that into context versus say, um, you know, melting glass to make fiberglass or, um, you know, the whole cycle of production that gets you from crude oil to say a foam insulation. Um, the, the, You're already the, way uh, ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, the impact of the fertilizer in the hemp is, is a pretty small drop in the bucket in comparison to sort of other insulation types. Okay. Um, we have some questions here about code and vapor barriers. I don't know if you plan to cover that a little bit more, if you want. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk quite a bit about code uh, towards the end, because clearly, you know, anything that we're building with like that, this that isn't directly recognized in codes, that is a big issue. So I'll, I will sort of directly uh, address that a, a bit later. Um, so right now, the, this next chart that we're looking at, um, this is sort of looking at the, the carbon sequestration. So, you know, you can see uh, a range of different insulation options down the left-hand side of the chart there. And they range, the top uh, few are all um, plant-based materials. And you can see that um, they end up in the, in the negative uh, range. So in other words, they are sequestering uh, carbon. Uh, so and hemp being the, the highest sequester there. And the reason it turns out higher is because it's more dense. So that you're actually packing more of it into the wall. Um, so it's, uh, it, it ends up at the high end. Uh, but you can see as we move down to like straw bales, cork, uh, cellulose, denim, um, the numbers start to, to get higher. And then you sort of pop into the, into the positive side. So, um, you can see that uh, the, the, the foam insulation that's there is, uh, is quite high in body carbon. So, you know, all of these plant-based materials, hempcrete included, kind of give us the potential to uh, build a building that, you know, either has a zero or even a, a negative um, carbon footprint. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the main attractions for, for us in our practice is uh, you know, we spend in the building industry a lot of time thinking about energy efficiency as a way to drive down emissions and uh, and address global warming. But uh, you can also do it with your building materials right up front, which has a pretty significant impact. Okay, so um, uses for hempcrete in the building. Um, you're looking at a whole bunch of them here. Um, so it can be used as sealing uh, a roof insulation, wall insulation. Uh, under slab insulation. Uh, we also use it as the insulation uh, around our windows, between the window and the rough framing. 
and uh, in this particular building, it's also that's integral with the, the windowsills and the trim. So all of that is actually built out with hempcrete. Uh, there's a bench top, and you can do sort of other decorative things with it. Uh, and uh, the hemp uh, also uh, can be incorporated into plasters. So you know, in that that one building we're looking at, um, there's uh, there's hemp used in all those different all those different areas. And so we'll kind of now look at the specifics of, of uh, how each of those works. So as wall insulation, which is, you know, by far and away its most common use, uh, the most typical scenario is uh, it's installed into a frame wall and quite often a, a double stud wall, uh, which allows the, the, you know, the thickness to be tailored to the, uh, to the amount of insulation you want. So up here in our climate in uh, Ontario, Canada, um, we're doing uh, hempcrete walls that are anywhere between sort of 12 and 16 inches thick. And so um, the, the two, the, the double stud walls are, are spaced that far apart. Um, and then we're using a, a fairly lightweight mix for those walls, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 200 to 275 kilograms per cubic meter. And, uh, and that's, you know, just enough density to uh, have the material turn into uh, a solid in the wall so it, it maintains its own shape and, um, and uh, is rigid, um, but as light as possible to get the best R value. And uh, also, I mentioned packing it in around the windows. So uh, we do that in place of, you know, spray foam. Uh, we pack it in around the windows. And you can either just use it as the window insulation um, but what we found works really well is to um, kind of put it in the in the uh, framing gap around the window, but then actually build it uh, all the way out onto the surface of the wall and make an integral trim. And that's a great way to um, quite quickly get a nice airtight insulated uh, window system and a trim uh, detail all at once. And uh, you can continue that to the inside and the outside uh, or just one or the other. Or like I said, you could just use the hempcrete between the windows. It's it's not the most common use for hempcrete. Um, in our particular building practice, we're you know we're always trying to uh, move towards the most natural materials possible. So you know to be able to replace something like spray foam in this scenario with, with the hempcrete, uh, it suits our goals really well. So for roof insulation, um, it's a very lightweight mix. Um, and typically we're not uh, sort of tamping this material at all. So we're just sort of um, mixing it and, uh, and pouring it loose into those cavities. Um, so that, uh, that gives us our best R value. And uh, because it's, it's on either the, the slope or the flat surface, um, it doesn't need any tamping or any added density to, uh, to keep it in place there. And then I mentioned before the, the, the sub-slab mix. Um, you know, you can see we're, we're uh, making that a bit denser. So we're doing that both by uh, adding more lime to the mix, um, but also doing a bit more tamping. And, uh, and that gets us to the point where, uh, where we can uh, handle the loads of a, of a slab floor on top of it. And a few um, less common uses, um, but also quite uh, you know, valid and interesting ones. Hempcrete makes a great, uh, masonry material if you're doing cordwood construction, um, because what it means is that rather than having to do a, uh, 
a masonry skin on the inside and the outside and pour loose insulation into the middle, you can just do the full width with hempcrete. So you get a much more airtight uh, corbel construction and a much more insulative one. And so we have used that a few times. Um, some interiorative, uh, some decorative interior elements. Um, if you if you get a chance to work with the material, it's it's uh, it's got a lot of really unique properties. It's extremely sculptable. Um, it just kind of like you stick it together, and even though it's lightweight, um, it, it holds its shape incredibly well. So it allows you to uh, to do all kinds of, uh, of sculptural things with it. And uh, in one case, you can see on the bottom right there. We actually used it as a perimeter beam foundation, um, so that uh, that's a, a grade-based perimeter beam that, uh, that the walls then sit on top of. Um, I'm seeing a question about uh, documentation on shear value of hempcrete because no sheathing on the studs. Um, there is uh, a bunch of testing done on that. Um, you can find those. Uh, those uh, things in uh, in the essential hempcrete book. Um, if if you know your building official isn't uh, open to looking at those kinds of tests, you can just put uh, sheeting on those studs too. Um, but it does it does provide a, a huge amount of shear strength to the studs. And uh, depending on how you finish out the wall, uh, we'll look at finishes. But if you if you're plastering the wall, which is a really common uh, finish. Um, that plaster is also adding a bunch of shear strength to that wall too. So often we're we're uh, we're looking at it as a, as a whole system. So mixing the material, um, the ideal machine is uh, is the one on the right, a, uh, a vertical shaft uh, mortar mixer. It does a great job of uh, of you know turning out large batches of hempcrete. Uh, but those machines can be kind of hard to find and uh, and expensive when you do find them. So we do most of our mixing in a, in a conventional sort of horizontal shaft mortar mixer, uh, like the one you can see on the left there, um, and uh, you know, sort of turning out you know six to ten cubic feet of material at a time, depending on the size of your of your mortar mixer. Um, the pictures on the bottom left are just examples of uh, larger, sort of more industrial sized machines. Um, the Europeans are you know very far ahead of us in terms of uh, their use of hempcrete. And so, you know, there's been more investment into you know, specific equipment for, for turning out large batches of hempcrete. But um, at this point, we can quite cost effectively do it uh, just in a conventional mortar mixer. Okay, so um, this is the sort of the basic wall mix ratio um, that you can see here. Um, I apologize. I'm a Canadian, so uh, all of my uh, my uh, my units are metric. Um, but you can you can basically just convert these to pounds. Uh, it's a ratio, so it uh, it works out just fine. Um, but basically, it's it's a kilogram of of hemp to a kilogram and a half of uh, the lime binder, and uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a kilogram and a half of water, or uh, that could be converted to pounds one for one. Um, and for us, our lime binder is uh, is half hydrated lime and, and half metacalum, as I was explaining earlier. One of the things that we do, uh, and this picture on the top left is sort of alluding to that, is because for the wall mixes, um, the installation involves tamping to, uh, to sort of pack the material into the wall. 
if we're aiming for a certain sort of, you know, pound per cubic foot ratio of, of the material, um, what we do is make a bunch of one cubic foot boxes and, uh, and have, you know, sort of work with the crew and watch them actually tamp their box and weigh out those boxes. And that really gets everybody on board with, you know, understanding, okay, if this is, if this is what we're aiming for as a density in the wall, um, you know, once you figure out how to get your box, uh, your one cubic foot box to that weight, then you have a pretty good idea how to translate that into, uh, into getting the right density on the job site. This is a, a look um, at, uh, at now those mixed ratios um, for, for different densities. So that uh, one to one and a half ratio is for a, a sort of um, mid-density wall mix. So you can see the very light ones, um, it's sort of one hemp to one binder. Um, as, and as you move up, you're sort of just increasing the amount of lime binder. Um, and so that the coating basically on each piece of hemp gets a little thicker you have a bit more of that uh, of that structural material and a bit less of the of the hemp material proportionally. So obviously, as you as you move into the uh, the more dense mixes, um, the, the the cost of the of the lime goes up uh, for the amount of, of area or cubic volume that you're filling. And you can see also that the the amount of tamping required is kind of noted there. So when we're doing the lightweight roof mixes, we're not tamping at all, we're just sort of pouring it in loose. As we move into the, the sort of mid-range ones, we're, uh, we're tamping is probably too severe a word. We're sort of pressing um, that material in, and if we're trying to get the, the high density, the sub-slab stuff, we're actually, uh, you know, compacting it to, to some degree. So now the binders. Um, like I was saying earlier, that the hydrated lime is um, is a sort of uh, the, the starting point for most of these. Um, if you are going to use the European natural hydraulic lime, so that's the, in the left column, if you see NHL, that's natural hydraulic lime. That would be the stuff that you'd be importing from either France or Portugal. Um, quite often, uh, people will will sort of cut that with uh, with North American hydrated lines so you can see you know proportions you know starting in this 50 50 half of each ratio and and sort of moving uh, up and down uh, from there the, the hydrated lime and metacalin that's basically that's our go-to mix and uh, like I said metacalin is a fire kale and clay most um, masonry supply um, stores uh, will either carry or be able to get you uh, a version of metacalin. It's it's also used as a as a admixture in, in cement mixes as well. So that's something that, that you should be able to get your hands on. And mixing it 50-50 uh, by weight or volume is, is sort of our default. Um, there's the ability to vary from that kind of 10% in either direction, but uh, it's just so easy to measure it out at 50-50, but that's what we go with. Um, some, some builders have uh, experimented with using magnesium cement um, to provide their hydraulic set. I haven't done that myself. I'm, I'm really keen to. Uh, it's a very fast set, uh, and so that, that could speed up some of the, uh, the sort of dry time issues. 
um, but getting my hands on the magnesium cement just uh, none of our local suppliers here carry it so uh, so I haven't gone down that path and you can um, use Portland cement it will kind of take the, the the lime and give it that that hydraulic set as well um, but the Portland cement makes a makes the mix much denser so even though it looks like you're adding the same amount of powder um, so when we have used Portland cement we've done 80% lime 20% Portland cement and even though it seems like um, you know that shouldn't make a big difference uh, the mixture turns out noticeably denser um, for the same amount of, of binder um, so we just uh, we haven't gone that way and the the, uh, the Portland cement also um, it doesn't it doesn't handle not not that it's uh, disturbed by moisture but um, it's not as uh, absorbent or or, um, or porous as uh, any of the lime mixes so it, it kind of reduces some of the, the moisture handling capabilities of the wall too. Um, I'm seeing the question about hempcrete being used as an insulation on the warm side of a concrete foundation wall. Um, it has. Uh, we've done that ourselves um, and a few other builders have. It hasn't been um, really thoroughly tested. Um, we just did it um, on a couple of the large concrete block walls at our shop and we've been monitoring it now for two winters and we're not seeing any uh, condensation between the uh, the hempcrete and the and the concrete. Um, we didn't install a, a vapor barrier of any kind just because we wanted to sort of see what would happen in the worst case scenario. So um, that gives me you know a lot of confidence to say you know that I would do that um, and it is something that um, that I would now you know tackle on a on a renovation where I doing that. Um, but it's you know there's not. There's not a ton of data on it. You, you know, basically going on uh, on, a, on a few um, anecdotal uh, installations. Chris, was that? Um, are, have you put uh, like moisture sensors in there, or just did? Yeah. Vapor yeah. Test? So, okay. No. So we've been we've been doing moisture sensors between the between like you know squeezed up between the hempcrete and the um, and the uh, and the concrete and. Uh, yeah, there hasn't there hasn't been any issues. Um, you know, even uh, you know it gets pretty cold where we are here, so we've got a pretty uh, strong vapor drive, and uh, you know that's that's watching that over the last two seasons has has given me a lot of confidence in it. But I you know I wouldn't just straight out say yes, you could do that anytime in any situation. Uh, but but I think it's uh, it's definitely. Um, one of the things that, that it could be used for. And I think, you know, in that way, it's one of the natural materials. You know, when I said earlier that the moisture handling properties of hempcrete is what uh, really attracts me to it, the ability to use it in those places, um, you know, old rubble foundations, concrete foundations, uh, those, the spaces between floor joist ends, you know, in, in older buildings and stuff like that, um, where you just would never risk um, you know, cellulose or straw or a, or an unprotected cellulose material. Um, the hempcrete does really well in those places. So a big part of uh, using hempcrete in walls is uh, it's it's basically it's a it's a formwork system. Um, however, for anybody who's used to concrete formwork, it's it's nothing like that. Um, the material is extremely lightweight. Um, and so our system that we sort of rely on is the one in the top left there. So it's just half inch ply, um, screwed to the studs, 
Um, we use roofing screws so that um, we're using like a hex head that sits above the uh, the formwork as we drive it in, um, so we don't lose our our screws and uh, have the heads fill up with uh, with hempcrete as we go. And uh, the material goes in between the formwork. Um, it's it's tamped lightly, and um, you don't have to form the whole wall. You can literally slip form like the within 30 seconds of you know tamping in the last uh, lift of hempcrete. You can just undo the form and slide it up and uh, and go again. So um, it's it's not uh, you don't have to do continuous form work, and you don't have to leave the forms up for any length of time at all. Um, the bottom left is something we've also done. So there we do um, put a, a permanent form. Uh, it can be on the inside or the outside of a uh, any sort of permeable uh, sheathing material. So um, that's uh, cement bonded wood wool in the in the photo you're looking at there. It could be wood fiberboard, um, anything that has a, a good permeability that'll let that moisture dry out through the material. So um, you can't use plywood or OSB as a permanent form. So you can use them as temporary forms that you you know slide up and take off. Um, but uh, if you left it on, uh, the the moisture from the mix would not leave at a great enough rate, and uh, the, the dry times would be really really long. Um, the picture on the bottom right, um, and I'm not sure why they do this, but all the European builders tend to go uh, with a single stud wall and um, they kind of attach their formwork uh, from both sides with uh, spacers and um, and then as you take the formwork out you pull the spacer and then you kind of stuff a bunch of hempcrete into the, the hole that was left behind by the spacer. Um, because that's how I saw it done uh, the very first time we did it that's how we did it and uh, I couldn't believe what a pain it was to do it that way and, and that's why we switched to the uh, to the double stud system, um, but that you can sort of bury the, the frame entirely in the material if you want. Um, so like I said, it's, you know, most of what's going on with hempcrete now is in, in UK and Europe, and, uh, you know, they've gone from the kind of um, small-scale applications that, that we're doing residentially here to tackling much larger projects. Um, and some of the ways they're doing that are with uh, spray applications. So they're only forming one side of the wall, and uh, you can see uh, on the top left there, you know, spraying it up against the wall. And then much like with sort of wet blown cellulose, kind of screeding it off to the to the frame, and uh, and they, you know, then they don't have to to uh, to sort of pour and pack like we're doing. Um, and they're also just, you know, in some cases using much bigger mixing material and much bigger placing uh, systems. So you know, you can see it uh, going in with a, a bucket on a on the zoom boom there. So you know, you're able to to kind of fill way more cubic feet than you can with uh, with humans and wheelbarrows. And uh, and I think you know, most kind of promising of all are the sort of prefab panels and blocks that are starting to be developed, where you know, all the pouring, forming, and drying is happening off-site, and uh, and you know the the, the big companies are sort of supplying a, a builder or a, or an owner or a contractor with with a, a hempcrete unit where you know the the person on-site is not responsible for the, the mixing or the forming or uh, or waiting for the drying to happen. And I think you know this is where we'll see 
you know, it, it really start to reach into the market when uh, when these types of developments happen, start happening here in North America. Uh, finishes on the hempcrete. Um, a lime plaster uh, applied right to the surface of the hempcrete is, is by far the most common approach. Um, you get a really great bond between the, the plaster and the, the hempcrete surface. Um, they work really well. The, um, the lime creates a, a continuous uh, air barrier and, uh, and uh, moisture um, control layer um, that's permeable on both sides. So uh, that's a really common approach. However, you can treat it like any insulation. So you could um, just wrap um, the, uh, the, the building in, say, a house wrap, uh, and then fur it out and do a rain screen siding of any kind. You can see a, a vertical wood siding in that one photo, but uh, people have done, you know, brick, stone, uh, wood products of all kinds, uh, cement fiberboard products. You know, it doesn't really matter. You can just kind of treat it like an insulation. Um, seeing the question about the uh, the double stud stress cracks in the render, um, not really. We so we mesh over the uh, over the studs and uh, have not found it to be uh, an issue. Um, there's um, yeah, it just uh, the the mesh covers the stud and uh, and bridges over onto the hempcrete about an inch in either direction, and uh, and that's been uh, sufficient to uh, to control that kind of cracking in our climate. So material costs, obviously this is something everybody uh, everybody wants to know. Um, now these costs, uh, it's tough to pin down a cost for hempcrete uh, because it's, it's very um, dependent on where you are and how accessible these materials are to you. And I would say, you know, definitely right now this is the, this is the, the thing that, um, that, that makes hempcrete uh, less than viable, especially in the U.S. You know, here in Canada, um, there are Canadian growers, and uh, we can access material from those Canadian growers. But if you're in the U.S., you know, it's not being grown in your country, and so you're looking at either uh, Canadian or European, uh, or in some cases Chinese imports. And uh, it kind of, it's unfortunate because right now it takes a material that should be incredibly cheap, and uh, you know, makes it uh, makes it more expensive than it needs to be. Um, but I think, um, you know, should the the hemp uh, market develop. Uh, there are some U.S. states now uh, handing out permits for uh, for experimental uh, hemp farming. Um, as that expands, it will uh, it will definitely uh, the, the price will drop quickly. But right now, um, sourcing uh, so these uh, prices are actually all in Canadian dollars. Um, so there there may be some some differences uh, if you're buying material from Canada. Uh, these prices may actually be lower, but comparatively, um, if we uh, can get uh, our, our hemp and lime and metacalin uh, all relatively locally, um, we are um, at about $3 a cubic foot for materials. Um, the bottom price of $10 a cubic foot, that's if I'm uh, importing European hemp, importing European binder, um, that would be my price here. So. Um, you can see, like that's a that's a huge variation, and uh, you know the the final price on your site will kind of depend um, greatly on uh, where you're getting those materials from, how many hands they're passing through on their way to you, and uh, and how people are marking that up. Uh, and you can see how that compares out um, 
to uh, to some other insulation materials. So it's definitely more expensive uh, than our typical kind of bat insulation. Uh, it's a little cheaper per cubic foot than the foam insulations, but but obviously you need more of it. So um, at this point, uh, you know, it's pretty much the the, the uh, one of the most expensive um, insulation materials that uh, that we work with, um, and we'll choose it for uh, a whole bunch of other reasons. It's moisture handling properties. It's uh, it's structural capabilities. You know, there's there's a lot of great things about it. It's carbon sequestration, all that kind of stuff. Um, but right now, it is definitely costing more than uh, than uh, another insulation. Chris, um, you know, since this is sort of a, uh, you know, even if it were purely accessible to the same degree that the straw clay and straw bale are, um, won't you think it'd be more fair to compare it to those than some of these other ones? Um, just because you sort of get a, a type of client who's going after a certain natural building material. Um, it would you know be. I mean? the, the, the problem there is it's very hard to compare, the, like, you know, straw bale costs can have the same kind of variability. So, you know, I looked at doing that in this chart and it just ended up being, you know, the same kind of, like, the, the, the span of possibility is so wide um, that, that it, you know, there isn't a fixed cost for, for any of those ones either. Absolutely. So, so almost you could say on the cost side of things, it's probably right there with it, right? I mean, you're, yeah, you're I mean, I think, you know, straw bale is definitely cheaper because what's adding, you know, the, the bulk of the cost to the hempcrete is, is that is the lime. You know, it's it's a material that's not in any of the other sort of natural wall systems, um, and it's, it's an expensive material. So you're buying this, you know, additional moisture handling capability and durability uh, by putting the lime in, but it's, it's costing you in... Uh, added density, so less R value per inch and extra cost. So, um, even, you know, even compared to the other natural materials, it's it's the most expensive one. Um, but it's because you're paying for this extra uh, ingredient that, uh, that, that, uh, that adds some desirable properties in some cases. Okay, I'm noticing that we're uh, getting on in time, so I'm gonna, pass through this slide. Um, this one is looking at, at sort of, you know, what some of the, the, the major uh, hurdles and issues are uh, for this material in, uh, in North America. And by far the biggest one is that the, the sources for hemp and lime um, just, you know, it's a tiny little market right now. Uh, essentially, there are two Canadian producers uh, doing it at any scale and zero American producers. So that means it's uh, it's definitely not widely available. Um, and, you know, much the same as what happened in Europe, it certainly was not hempcrete construction that drove the hemp market. The, uh, the hemp market um, developed for both seed and fiber, and then the producers had all this herd left over, and, uh, and so it made it, uh, you know, uh, it, it opened up the market because now there was this waste material that, uh, that everybody could uh, could get their hands on for a good price, and I would imagine that, uh, that the same thing uh, sooner or later is, is going to happen here. Um, but until it does, those economies of scale just aren't there. Um, the higher labor inputs uh, for the formwork and the mixing and the placing—I'm um, not actually sure that's 
that's an issue. You know, we've we've done lots of conventional work and other natural building materials and hempcrete, and uh, really the the, the labor uh, per you know per square foot of wall is very similar. Um, but definitely, you know, if we had more industrial mixing technology um, and uh, sort of permeable wallboard options, uh, it would reduce that further. And so uh, the last one is something we haven't touched on yet, but um, it, uh, it's definitely an issue. So the drawing time, now this is something, um, you know, clearly the drawing time uh, is, is highly variable, both on the mix side. So, you know, controlling the mix so that the, the right amount of water is going in is, uh, is hugely important. Uh, so that's why in the in the formulations that I gave you earlier, you know, there's an actual weight where you can convert that weight to volume of water. Um, and really what you want to do is, is use as little water in that mix as possible. Um, but if you, you know, if you supersaturate the mix, the dry time goes up. So, um, so what we've been finding is uh, between one to, to four weeks of drying time before closing in the walls. And that, you know, if our, if our mix was uh, was done right. Um, that variability is really based on weather. So, you know, if we're uh, doing it in the shoulder seasons, um, where you know it might be both cold and damp, uh, we'll see the longer drying times. If it's uh, if it's happening, you know, on nice dry summer days, uh, the drying happens quickly. So, I mean, really, that's uh, that's a. a a matter of, of trying it out in your climate and uh, and, uh, and seeing how long it takes, um, but it is something if you know if you are interested in, in hempcrete construction, that keeping that in mind and knowing what that that length of time is going to be, you'll have to figure that into your schedule. So you know what we do on hempcrete building is um, get the framing up, get the hempcrete in right away, and then you know sort of schedule say uh, then you know finishing up the roof, getting attic insulation and maybe even finishing up the ceiling or something like that, maybe even addressing the floors. And by the time we've done that, uh, we're good to come back to the walls. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for Hempcrete to have a, a really, um, you know, a real impact on the market, various forms of, of prefabricating it will be important. And uh, I'm really excited uh, by the, the block system on the left there. It's called Just Biofiber. Uh, they're in Alberta, Canada, and they're a startup. So um, this is going to be their first year of production. We're uh, going to be uh, hopefully using some of their blocks on a project we're doing. And uh, I think the, the, the brilliant part about their system is those embedded uh, two-by-twos are also the structure. So that's not uh, a block that you have to uh, frame into your wall. Um, it's stacked and you're, you're getting the structure and insulation all in one, the block is dry. And so, you know, I kind of see that type of approach as, uh, as you know, the way forward for, uh, for hempcrete much more so than, um, you know, on-site uh, mixing and, and forming um, and precast wall systems like the, the hem-build one that's, uh, that's in England right now. So I think you know, always for, for owner builders and people who uh, are, are sort of looking to put their own labor into the building, obviously, you know, the, the, the site mixed, site tamped kind of version 
uh, is entirely appropriate. And it can even be done, you know, on a on a commercial basis. Um, but it, uh, I think, you know, these sort of prefab systems are really uh, the way forward for uh, for moving this material more into the mainstream. Um, these are some uh, of the, the resources that I would suggest. Um, the Essential Hemp Preconstruction is, uh, is the book I wrote, and lots of the, the charts and tables from this presentation are in there. So that was sort of that book is my attempt to uh, to be you know as explicit as possible. Uh, the Hempcrete book, actually, all the other three books are from the UK. Um, there, the Hempcrete book is a good sort of introduction. There's no recipes or formulas or anything in that one, but it's a good sort of you know overall look. Um, and uh, the building with hemp and hemp lime construction are both uh, pretty specific to uh, British UK uh, building methodologies, but there is a, a lot of good information in them as well. And it's just a, a look at uh, at some of uh, some of the finished hempcrete buildings that we've done here. Um, you know, the, the nice thing about hempcrete as a as an insulation system, and especially one that that you can twin with either um, traditional stud framing or timber framing, um, the buildings don't have to look any particular way. Um, you know, they can be plastered on the exterior, but they can also be sided, um, and uh, you know, really, it's it's not something that uh, that has to call attention to itself in the building. But if if that's one of the reasons you're doing it, then then you certainly can uh, draw attention to it. But it, uh, um, yeah, it's been a it's been a really sort of uh, great resilient, in particular, is what I like about it, uh, and natural building material for uh, for us in our practice. So I think I think I must be pretty close to the uh, to the hour here. Um, so uh, I'm happy to, to take any questions that uh, that remain from the from the presentation. Yeah, great, Chris. We got some time to stick around for questions if you got a little bit. Okay. Um, oh, I see a question now. Right, about, uh, um, and and well, before we get into the questions, uh, I'm sorry, everybody. Before we get into the questions, um, and, and please drop your questions in. But before we get to them, for those of you who've got to go. Uh, for CU reporting, check your email, check your SAM. Uh, when this session closes out, a survey will pop up. Make sure to take one of those surveys. It's the same survey. Uh, report to G GBCI, give us your AIA, and we will report that for you. Uh, for those of you watching this on demand, that's the recording, not live. Make sure to complete your 10 question quiz with an 80% uh, passing rate. And just a huge thanks uh, to uh, all of our sponsors here, uh, Sir Build Equinox, Smart Ventilation, Sun Intuitive Self-Tinting Glass, Niagara Conservation, Lowest flow, Flowing Toilets on the Planet, Panasonic Ventilation for all your bath venting uh, needs, and Certeed Air Renew, Formaldehyde Eating Drywall. Couldn't do it without our sponsors, without our members, without you, our board of directors, and all of our volunteers. Uh, so the question that uh, I have here is, what type of mesh do you use in the render and plaster-based coats with double stud forming system, can you use? Uh, I don't know if this is galvanized or what, but galv with lime. Um, so typically, uh, we are not using any mesh over the the body of the hempcrete. Um, the the surface of the hempcrete is just like an ideal um, binding surface for plaster. So uh, we plaster directly onto the hempcrete, and then, like I said, where where the studs show, um, we typically will use a plastic mesh. 
um, but uh, a galvanized would uh, would work fine too. Uh, what uh, what kind of um, opportunities do you see for um, multifamily housing for Hempcrete? Um, primarily, I'm thinking you know more stacked um, two, three, four stories. Do you see any opportunities, challenges with that? Um, I mean, I definitely see oppor both opportunities and challenges. I think um, you know those kind of uh, either the prefab walls or the prefab blocks would would make that really feasible. Um, I think you know the the drawback right now in multi-residential would be um, the the sort of dry times. You know, on a single-family building, you can kind of plot that out and and figure it into your schedule. But I think if you you know suddenly had a much larger building where that hempcrete was going in over a longer period of time, then you'd have these sort of staggered dry times that that I think you know could make scheduling really uh, really tricky. Um, that said, you know, the, the, the prefab walls or the prefab blocks, um, I think one of the great things about them is, um, you know, you would, you would be able to make a, a fire separation wall um, that's also a sound insulation wall um, in a really sort of easy one-step process. So, you know, those, uh, those blocks get a great fire rating um, and have good thermal value, and so it would allow you to, uh, to kind of make separations between units that, that aren't transmitting sound um but our good fire stops um what do you think for those maybe and i'm thinking sort of especially uh, urban builders who may be limited on how thick their walls can be um you know what kind of opportunities or what kind of insulation recommendations do you have for those maybe trying to achieve higher our wall values for passive house or net for zero energy capable uh, any any insulations to avoid or that you'd recommend for either exterior or interior use? Um, I mean, it's it's um, we work with lots of different things. Um, I'm I'm pretty excited by the the uh, the sort of the cork panels now um, in terms of you know getting uh, an R value that's up uh, in the range, uh, very similar to foam, sort of like you know four per inch. Uh, on those, um, I think uh, you know straw works really well. We do an awful lot just with um, you know typical kind of cellulose insulation. is a great carbon sequester that's really affordable and has a has a good uh, has a good R value to it. Um, we've done you know we've used straw in lots of ways in those scenarios. Um, we've also started working a lot with uh, insulated uh, plasters and renders. Um, so. Um, expanded glass aggregate and aerogel type uh, plasters. So uh, it's a line plaster uh, that we're getting about R4 per inch out of. So there's, there's a huge kind of range of, uh, of approaches that, uh, that we use and, and they're all kind of always kind of specific to the, to the site and the design and, the, and what's available locally. Um, if, uh... If somebody wanted to, uh, well, I guess, uh, let's see, I got another question here. Can you speak to what is in the way or what hurdles need to be jumped to get um, the International Construction Code reports so it can be permitted for the use in the U.S.? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's two things. One is, 
you know, getting it passed uh, on an individual basis for, you know, a single project using kind of the alternative compliance pathways that exist in, in the code. Um, so the, the handful of houses, you know, hempcrete houses in the U.S. right now, um, I know of about a dozen, have all sort of gone that route. So provided, um, you know, European testing and documentation and sort of argued for the, um, the equivalency uh, to what's in the U.S. code and, and kind of using the, the alternative materials pathways there. Um, to actually get it, uh, you know, uh, through in terms of widespread adoption, um, you know, it's obviously it's a longer process. Um, I was part of helping uh, get straw bale and straw clay uh, appendixes into the ICC, and that was about a 10-year process, um, you know, uh, done on a very low budget by, by a group of builders. Um, I think hempcrete might jump that way a bit faster uh, it, because it's it's more, um, you know, the, the block and the precast manufacturers, if they decide to, to tackle the American market, you know, they they would, you know, obviously need to fund that that testing and, and get that material uh, through the code in order for their business model to work. So um, I know that the Just Biofiber company is doing that. Uh, in terms of the Canadian codes right now, they're a Canadian company kind of focusing on this market, but, um, you know, that, that type of work is typically done by uh, somebody who, who stands to benefit financially from doing it. And uh, so right now it's not clear, you know, who that would be in the American market. So it's, it's pretty much going to be a case-by-case a -case, uh, scenario until then. All right, great, thanks. Well, um, we are at uh, 1.15. I don't see any other questions. Uh, Chris, I really want to thank you for your time. I want to thank the Endeavor Center. And um, uh, real quick, I wanted to uh, point out to everybody here this uh, pretty cool project you guys worked on that's not hempcrete, but it's uh, uh, Canada's greenest home, and I hear it's still holding the title. Um, so I think everybody can check that out on your on your website too, if they want to learn some other strategies, especially for uh, the climate zone that you have to deal with. Um, you know, I think only folks like up in Minnesota and maybe northern Michigan have the same issues, uh, perhaps. So it's it's certainly an accomplishment. Uh, so again, where can people find some more information? And if they want to get some training on this, is there any opportunity for that? Um. Yeah, are, are you hearing me now? Chris, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yep. so, um, yeah, we do we do uh, hands-on uh, workshops at Endeavor Center on hempcrete. Um, the, the Essential Hempcrete Construction Book kind of has everything I know about hempcrete in it, so uh, that's a good way to go. Um, and there are uh, a couple of, uh, of hempcrete building organizations in the U.S. that people could look up. They also do sort of like on-site training and workshops and things like that. Okay, great. Well, uh, if everyone has any questions, Chris's contact information is down here at the bottom. Uh, this will be available on our website. Uh, everybody have a great uh, week. Take care. Um, and thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate everybody's time for, uh, for listening in. Inside Australia's 3D printed hemp houses, the world is running out of sand. That may not sound like it is even possible, but it's as accurate as it can get. We all know that sand and cement are the ingredients for the buildings in modern life. 
We're talking bridges, houses, buildings and whatnot. It does appear that sand is a bottomless resource, but that is as far from the truth as possible. The reality is that more sand is being collected from riverbeds, beaches and seashores than it was ever collected in the history of mankind. For billions of years, sand has existed as a seemingly endless resource, but it turns out that we have been using it so much that it's turned into a crisis now. Before we talk more about our sand crisis, could we possibly build structures without depending on sand? The answer lies in something called hemp. The company behind the hemp houses in Australia is called Mareco. The kind of technology they're using to construct houses is as futuristic as it gets. Let's take out a few moments to understand why this approach solves a huge crisis that is overcoming our planet at this point. Let me start by asking you a question. Which natural resource do you think we consume the most? Water, obviously. But what is the second most consumed natural resource on our planet? Sand. That's right. We use it to build bridges, buildings, houses, and basically everything that you can think of in the modern world. The demand for sand continues to rise as it's an important ingredient for construction, which is used by mixing it with cement. Most of you must already be familiar with the concept. But why are we talking about this? It can be argued that there are deserts out there in the world full of heavenly amounts of sand. While that is true, you may be surprised to know that we cannot exactly use it to build anything. If you're wondering why, it's because sand in the deserts is only in contact with air, which makes it round and smooth. As a result, it won't stick together to produce a strong material. It's only the sands on the beaches, besides the rivers, and on seabeds that we actually like. It's because that sand is eroded by water and has a rougher shape and structure. As a result, it sticks together as perfectly as you can imagine, making an incredibly strong material. In fact, we even need sand to build silicon chips. Having said all of that, where does that put us now? To be able to look away from sand and continue building what we build, we could consider hemp as a revolutionary material. Hemp is basically a carbon-neutral material that actually absorbs carbon dioxide out of the environment. So not only is it adding zero problems to your surroundings, you'd actually be helping by taking in excess CO2 that would otherwise be in the air. That's just one reason why hemp houses are attractive. Having been under planning for years, hemp houses are continuing to become popular across the world, especially in Australia. Let's take a walk through the unimaginable benefits and luxury that we can now turn into a reality using this material. It won't be wrong to say that this is the future of housing and construction itself. Don't believe me? Have a look for yourself. The fact that the world may be running out of sand will not be enough to convince everyone to take some interest in hemp houses. Forget about all the good it brings to the environment. Let's get selfish for a second. Compared to concrete, your house would be seven times stronger if constructed with hemp. That's right, seven times. The strength of a concrete building is rarely tested by nature, but it can definitely happen. Earthquakes can most definitely take those buildings down. Well, not the hemp houses in Australia. Forget about strength, let's get even more creative. Hemp as a construction material is three times more elastic than concrete. So while our hands are tied when dealing with bricks and cement, we can get as creative as we want with hemp. One doesn't have to build their houses in the conventional shapes. With hemp, you can go for shapes that would never be possible with cement. Of course, there's a limit to how creative you can get when you're using bricks. But if you're actually 3D printing your house, there are no limits to creativity. This is exactly why you will see many unusual shapes and sizes of houses like these. It really gets better the more you get to know about it. 
When we're building conventional houses, how long would you say it takes to build one? Nearly a year, if not more than a year, depending on a lot of different circumstances? That's just not the time it takes to 3D print a hemp house, that's for sure. While 3D printing these hemp panels is a matter of minutes to hours, it's the process of putting these together that takes up some time. But you can very well expect your house to be ready within as little as two days. No matter how complex, huge, or slow the process is, it's not going to take more than a couple of weeks to get your house ready. The point is, is that if we can forego the need for sand for our construction purposes, we can do our environment a huge favor. Countries like Vietnam are already facing huge shortages of sand, as a result of which erosion is becoming a huge problem. It's only an added benefit that the material in question is better than cement in every way imaginable. One major benefit of hemp, which was not previously discussed, is its thermal properties. In the summers, when it's boiling outside, hemp structures will keep the house cool. It would actually keep the temperatures remarkably comfortable, which cannot ever be achieved with traditional construction unless we are using air conditioning, of course. Similarly, when all you crave is some warmth in the winters, hemp will keep your house warm. These unique properties of this material that can regulate temperatures are simply out of this world. In some of these 3D printed hemp houses, they've actually shown refrigerators are totally different from anything you would have ever seen. There's an entire tiny room designated as a refrigerator with a small air conditioner attached for starters. The room keeps the temperature low automatically and naturally. The air conditioner only turns on when it's needed, and that too for short periods of time. Having an entire house built with this concept will not only make you environmentally friendlier, but will also let you achieve levels of comfort and leisure that you may have never experienced before. If you think we've already gone through all the upsides of this concept, well, you are wrong. Let's talk about solar glass for a second. So, if you have a look at these houses, you'll notice large windows that allow for lots of sunlight and bright rooms. But there's something that is not visible on the surface. You may be surprised to know that these windows are actually generating electricity. That's right, this is possible by applying groundbreaking glazing innovations, which were developed by Australia's Clearview Technologies. To this, we add yet another dimension to Mareko's dwellings, the Mareko Hemp Building Facade System. Okay, so this system will basically incorporate Clearview's clear patented and energy charging glass that will literally transform UV light into electricity. This is about as futuristic as it gets. Mareko conducts most of its branding by focusing on the environmental impact of its work. They make sure that the consumers know how exactly they're helping the environment by using their approach to housing. To make matters even more interesting, 3D printing these houses is actually much cheaper than you think. Prices can range anywhere between $4,000 to $10,000, depending on the required amount of work. The only reason why we don't see this technology spreading like wildfire is that it's still new. Inhabitants of these houses are already moving into their new homes. This is something that is getting more and more popular with each passing day. As time passes, it won't be surprising if they can build equally impressive structures at even smaller costs. This will essentially allow economically disadvantaged people to access this technology as well. With that, we will bring this video to an end. If you liked what you saw, please consider subscribing to our channel for similar content in the future. Let us know what your thoughts are about these 3D printed hemp houses in the comments below. Thank you for watching and have a great day. You probably have one of these, a home printer, but what you're about to see is a home printer. Witnessing what may be the most significant change in home construction. That is a giant 3D printer, and it's spitting out the walls of a brand new house.
Just two men, one with a tablet building, or shall we say printing a house, versus traditional building methods, which would typically require a dozen set of hands. This is the way of the future. This will become mainstream. This will become widespread. And duck, duck, seriously. <laughs> there you go, no duck. The printer's nozzle layers the walls with a concrete-type mixture, computer-guided construction, which is more precise than a pastry chef's skilled hands decorating a cupcake. It feels a little bit like Play-Doh, how quickly does it harden here? Quickly enough to stack on top of it, right? It's got to stay flowable enough to get to the printer, but then it's got to harden up enough for us to stack on top of it. And that's the secret sauce. Perhaps most significantly, what would typically take a construction crew 10 months to build is now accomplished without wood or nails in about half the time. This may sound like a novel experiment, but it is so much more than that. Here in the Texas Hill Country, in this thousand-acre subdivision, they're building a hundred homes like this, a place that someday may be known as the spot that home construction changed forever. To best understand the sea change happening here in Georgetown, Texas, consider Lennar, one of the largest home builders in the United States, has teamed with the inventors of this giant printer, an Austin-based tech company called Icon. I believe we are on the brink here of doing something very special, something very innovative, and no one's ever done it, no one's ever built 100 homes uh, with 3D printers. It's also unusual that 3D printing a house? Well, I know it sounds unusual, but this technology is actually one that's existed for a while. Dimitri Julius is one of the brains behind this tech that allows for walls that are curved, even wavy if you want, and at the same time are so incredibly solid. So that means something like this can withstand potentially uh, hurricanes is, a, is an interesting use case. We're currently building houses on the Texas Gulf Coast, thinking specifically about uh, the durability of a concrete material. If all of this sounds like it's out of this world, like something from the Jetsons, then you're on to something because... Three, two, one. NASA, which just launched Artemis to orbit the moon this week, is working with ICON. We, we are planning on putting a 3D printer on the moon with NASA. And beyond? That's the hope. Mars? That's the dream. Mars. Someday, printed homes up there. But first, here on Earth. The test homes have shown they're more energy efficient and usually quiet. The walls, they feel a little bit like corduroy. A printed house, what maybe one day future generations will find commonplace. My son's uh, 15 months old. Will this be routine when he's 15 years old? If it is, we've succeeded. Guys, I think we have just glimpsed the future. I so. I agree. I, hey, it, that was fascinating. It was. Really but here's good. the question, though, Carrie. I mean, the... You know, the, the technology and the cool factor notwithstanding, I think a lot of folks are probably wondering, like, what about people who work in this industry? Is this going to lead to folks who don't have jobs? You know, I put that question to Icon, the inventors here, and they point it out, and anybody who's done construction, even a small job around the house already knows this, uh, there's a real shortage in this country That's of true. 
folks to do that construction work. Absolutely. And so that's part of the reason we have more than 500 or 5 million houses that are needed but are not built. And so ICON thinks this will supplement that. This will not put people out of work because right now uh, there aren't enough people to do the jobs anyway. And are the Guys, homes are the homes affordable? Well, you know, it depends. They have actually built some of these homes down first in Mexico, okay. and they wanted to test them out to see how they would work. And so they built smaller homes. They can be cheaper, especially when you go to scale. But down there in Mexico, not only did they withstand some floods, but they had a 5.5 shaker, you know, an earthquake, yeah. and the yeah. homes withstood that. So, yes, the homes that we saw there in uh, in Georgetown, Texas, they're going to start at around the mid-400s. Okay. You know, it really yeah. depends your budget. But, Absolutely. you know, as more and more are built, prices will drop. That's Absolutely. true. It's fascinating Thank story. you, Carrie. That was cool. Yeah. Really Thank cool. you, Carrie. All right. Hey, thanks for watching. Don't miss the Today Show every weekday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 Pacific, on our streaming channel, Today All Day. To watch, head to today.com slash all day or click the link right here. Since 1960, more than half of the world's tropical forests have been destroyed and nearly 5 billion tons of carbon dioxide are dumped into the atmosphere every year due to deforestation. If we continue these practices, only 10% of the world's forests could remain in 2030. So what's the solution? Hemp wood. Hemp wood is made from fiber hemp stalks grown organically by local farmers in four months and is bound by a non-toxic plant-based adhesive. Hemp wood can be used for hardwood lumber and flooring. The manufacturing process even utilizes bio-based energy, making it a carbon-negative product. And since it's made in America, customers can expect shorter lead times and a higher quality product. Hemp wood is a sustainable solution to deforestation. Visit hempwood.com today to learn more. Welcome to another episode of Cooking with Mickey and Scooter. Today we're going to be putting together uh, Mima Smith Angel Biscuit recipe. We have it all the time. And uh, we'll have that available too on our website from the farms. So uh, we're getting ready to just put the phone away and record it unfiltered. So no telling what you're here, but hope you enjoy. And we're gonna start getting the ingredients.
into a big bowl. Usually just pop it right in the sink. Cups of flour. 
packages of yeast. Tablespoons of tippet water, but not too hot. And you tell them, yes. <laughs> and as you're putting the sugar in there and the water, warm but not too hot. You stir them around a little bit, and then you tell the yeasties, tree, tree idea, tree, and five, three, <laughs> five. not one, not two, not three, not four. Five <laughs> tablespoons of warm tepid water, right there. Five. Here. 
You Here, put, father. You, you put it in and I said, hey, what's happened to these pots over here? Hey, get scrubbed. Oh, we're scrubbing pots. And I want to scrub pots. Well, anyway, we need water. Scrub them pots. Scrub those pots. Scrub them pots. Yeah, they get scrubbed them pots. That's hot, baby. Go. No, you gotta get five tablespoons. It must be yeah, exact. Hot, no, it must be exact. Don't be used to it. Uh, how hot is it? You gotta find out. I don't know. I don't know. Don't cut it. I'll tell her. Don't cut it, son. That's okay. <laughs> Put it in there. Well, look, there's a cold One. thing. There's a cold thing here. Uh, hot and cold make warm. What? Like that. Oh, yeah. It's oh, perfect. Yeah, it's lovely. See, you put the hot with the cold and the cold with the hot. I'm trying to count. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but wait, there's more. How should there be more? There's way more. I have to say. I'm going to stir this around a little bit. Well, I have yeast. to ask. How can, I, how can you ask? Well, you have to tell the yeast. Start growing. There you go. Come on. watch. Give it about five minutes. By the time we get done doing. Did you hear what I just said? By the time we we get done shaving the butter, I don't think you heard me. Well, you would. I'll, I'll do it. Here, would you please throw this away? All right, now. We need a half teaspoon baking soda. Five teaspoons baking powder. Right here, please. In that bowl. As Mr. John Foster would say, put it in that bowl right there. With them, uh, Is it uh, about it's right there? How many of these do you need? Baking soda? Baking soda? <laughs> the soda? My, you don't need but one half of them soda. One half teaspoon? One half of them soda, yeah? Okay. How much baking powder? And that baking powder right there, you need to have five of them teaspoons. I tell you. I say, I say you need five of them. <laughs> the, um, uh, old 
while you're there. Grate <laughs> <laughs> some cheese. Put some teaspoons. Salt. And what is salt? Sodium bicarbonate. What is baking soda? Baking soda. <laughs> bicarbonate of soda. <laughs> What is salt? Um, salt is... I don't know, what is it? That's your homework. No, I don't <laughs> like homework. I like as much as you like day. to cook. What is this right here? What is baking soda? A base. But what is it? What is it? Chemistry, what is it? Baking soda? Sodium? Yay! I told you that. No, I wait, said that first of all. Salt. We were talking about salt. Oh, well, you confused me. Got me on salt. <laughs> you got me on salt. We were man. talking about salt. What was salt? Um, hydrogen, sodium. Hydrogen-sized. That's all, it's, it, uh, it's all you need to know. Right? Kids, kids, I could have told you that. What's in it? Salt. Did you put, did you put, did you, speaking of which, did you put salt in there? Yeah, it's all in there. It's all in there. All taken care of. Now, oh. here's a fun pie. Great. Oh, no. Great. The butter. Two cups of buttermilk. Two cups baby. of buttermilk, but we ain't got no buttermilk. We gotta make some buttermilk with that. Oh, we're we gonna make buttermilk. Uh, yeah, two cups. Two, two cups of what? Buttermilk. Two cups of buttermilk. Yeah. We got buttermilk. We're making it right here now. Making with what? <laughs> right here now. Making buttermilk with what? Are you gonna make it with? Vinegar. What kind of vinegar? Any old kind of vinegar you, get you feel like. the apple cider vinegar. You got the uh, regular white vinegar. I and like the lovely kind. We got the balsamic vinegar over here. Interestingly enough, did you know that vinegar can also be used as remnants for making cheeses? Yeah. Yeah. Make some buttermilk. <laughs> if you let it go long enough, that will turn into mozzarella or ricotta. That's a whole other show, though. Hey, what's our skewer look like? Let's oh, look at it. Oh, see yeah, how much weight is coming out of it. 
exciting. How much what? Way. <laughs> well, why don't you just please wait a minute? <laughs> hey, that salad was good. Wow, look at that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Woo! Look at that. baby. Overflowing with whey. Got it? Yeah. Now see, boy, that weight could be fed to the chickens and the pigs. Well, uh, yep. Look at all that. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, that's with no weight on it. Yeah. Gravity. Yep. Isn't that awesome? Homemade cheese. Can't beat that. What? The other thing is, you know what's in it. We make it right there. I can't wait to start trying this with goat milk. Look at all that. Just, I dumped the bunch. You may just dump it out. Did you put the vinegar in there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How much did you put in? About a table, about, about a teaspoon. A teaspoon? I didn't put it in. In two cups, and that's about that's how we make our better milk. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I used to be a boot. Oh, hold on, I'll get the door. Grab the door, would you I'm open in the door? <laughs> Oh, I still remember that at church when the, the ladies they were singing. It was a, they were trying to do the jazz music and, and keep the door. Oh, shut the door, keep out the devil. Shut out the door. You bad, you devil. That's funny. Okie dokie now. Uh oh. <clears throat> Gracious, we go through butter. Butter. We bake butter and milk. The cow and a goat. Travel through. Cow and a goat. Yep, that's what we need. Our woes will be over. I want to show you how cool this is. Dip in flour. Well, you put every all the, so all of the, uh, the salt and the bacon soda and powder is not ready. Yep, just mix it around. Do you want to open in a salt uh, soda? Uh, one of those, mix the soda in, in the salt. And just the box grater. Put it in the flour. And put the flour in. Make sure you do the inside of it too. Put the butter in there. And then watch how this is. 
Grandma would be so happy that we came up with something like this. Man, if that or... Oh my gosh, she would love it. Because, yeah. yeah, she Thank used to always melt the butter and put some right in. Yeah. And it keeps it flaky. Now watch this, if you don't mind. No. When I, when I start making it, just kind of move it around with your fingers. Watch how fast the stick of butter is going to go away. a little bit um, just because of friction mm -hmm. so just dip it back in the flour a little bit as you go towards the end you know it gets kind of you know, yeah just dip it in the flour and it just it keeps it at the point you can grate it. Yeah, it keeps it to the point you can grate it in. And look, it's all done. Shazam! Zinc. <laughs> that one? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Because usually by the time I get those grated, Look at the yeast is growing, it's happy, so just like we do the plants, talking to it, it's a living thing, it responds to that good positive energy and it makes it happy and makes it want to grow. Now this is just with regular butter. Can you imagine doing this with a stick of butter like you had made the other day? <laughs> good. Yep. That'd be perfect. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you talked about that. I think we get settled. Well, they need chefs to teach people how to cook with it, honey. I know. A lot of people don't. And this one we did the other day would be a perfect thing to do to show people how to do that. I've already started on a cookbook. Cooking with him? Yeah. Yep. Well, but all of this. Because we want to do the flour with the cookies. Yeah, I love to do flour. Make it look like a Cajun. Um, a Cajun meat pie. Mm -hmm. Cool, nice. Now, you want to mix it? Yeah, I'll do it. Let me show you how I do it. 
Let me show you how I'll do it, yeah. and then you do it next time. Right. Need two knives? Uh, yep, perfect. I'll show you how I'll do it, then I'll give it to you. Okay. okay? Alright, so get the uh, get the liquid ingredients. Yep, so look at how the uh, the yeast is all happy and bloomed, mm -hmm. and the buttermilk is finished. Mm -hmm. So Oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember. yeah, pour them into each other. Make sure, yeah, and make sure you wash all of them out. And just make it well in the center. Yep, perfect. Plus, you could look at buttermilk, baby. Woohoo! No time at all. Not at all. Yep. Or just yeah, just pour it back and forth. Make sure you wash it out in all of it. Yep. That's exactly how it Uh, two butter knives. I'll let you do it. I'll just show you how I yeah, start it out. No, no, this is it. Just start around the top. Start around the top and just bring it right in. That way you don't have to get your fingers in it. And when they get cloggy, just look out easy. Scrape it off. Yeah. And if you need to move it, you can just twist it right around too. But boy, is it so much easier. Fifty years of making angel biscuits and I just figured that, that out. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. so when we get ready to show like the at a farm to table when we have we have people that might have challenges. What an easy way it is for them to learn how to mix. Yeah, exactly. We have tactile, yep. Yeah. Well for people yeah that have autism. Yep, exactly. Right. See how it all comes together? Yeah. Yeah. I have a little extra flour here on the side. I always keep a little partial bag in the cabinets because we cook a lot. Sprinkle? Yeah. Don't want to take too much because yeah, I don't want to be too dry. See, I even get the knife and scrape it all off the side because it, it gets it right off of the glass. Behind my duties. <laughs> Get screwing. I ain't screwing. I ain't screwing nothing. I tell you. Get kicking. I'm, I'm about to put some oil. Because this bowl right here is what I'm about to do. Oh. Got all the bowl. 
It doesn't stick. Look at that right there. Just a wasn't there a band that kids all listen to called Biscuits there? I don't know. I never heard of Sticky Biscuits. No. I heard of Limp Biscuits, but not Sticky Biscuits. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, I see Biscuits, the horse. <laughs> sea Biscuit was a racehorse. Yeah. There's also a movie, you can watch it sometime, on the Netflix. Yeah. It's a sad story, as so many of them are. That's a hard industry to be in. Yeah, it's all nice here. And nicely beef cold. Perfect. It is. I still remember calling that mom. Why is this dough so sticky? I keep adding flour to it. She's like, no, don't do that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. All right, we're going to let it go. Yeah, it's a just put it in the fridge, cover it, put it in the refrigerator for a couple hours, and boom, 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 Better watch it. I know you're from the streets, and I'm quite trusting. Hey. <laughs> I know you from the hood. I got you. I got your back. I got your back. I got your back. I got your front. Get your bag. Come get your soap. I'm getting laryngitis. Calling them I tell you, I, what I'd love to do just for fun is to start. Come on. What? I'm weird. I'm man. trying to talk to you. <laughs> it's funny feeling on my hand. Well, get used to it. <laughs> You're going to funny. It feels like paste. When do you start doing it? When you make a mache. That feeling. You're not making it dry. Yeah, well, you shit. can wash your fingers and it won't be so good. <laughs> so just stick it to your peel. Yeah, I had a tree. It's like having paste on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had a bad paste. Oh my gosh, my cousin Daniel, that was so cute. Stepped in mud and threw up when he was a baby. Screw this. No, we're going to wash them. It's easier. Oh.
worst he didn't scream. <laughs> Don't give me no bull. Don't give me no bull. <laughs> you full of bull. You way full of it. You way full of bull. Yeah. Even the stuff we first poured on the fire, that was all time ago. So we used to do new stuff every week. Every week. Oh, I was up for the Andy Christmas. So, yeah, about two hours in the fridge. Yeah. And I'll put it on top of our skier. Awesome. Uh, Scare looks really good. Weight. Yeah. That's some good solid weight. Yep. Angel biscuit dough. That's a bowl. How old are the pots? Speaking of bowls, this one's not going to dry it, so. Huh? Speaking of pots, this one ain't gonna dry by itself. Good to work, kid. <laughs> Come on, kid, you bother me. Get to work. <laughs> oh, these the pots over here. Are the, these are grandpa or your mom's dad? Mom's dad. Uh, that would be Grandma Craig. I think so. Yeah, so how old was that? The older one. Oh, boy. Anyway, that, that old idea. I think I looked them up online. They're still in existence. They need to get the, the handle replaced. Yeah, Mom was they're not getting, they're not getting scrubbed themselves all the time. I'm on my brain. I'm on my brain. Yeah, I have to do this here. <laughs> I'm over smooth brain. Don't smoke. Come on, man. You don't drink, you don't smoke. What do you do? Hey, I see you. Bum, bum, banana. You cannot. Bum, bum, banana. You cannot rehearse that. Bum, bum, banana. No. It was like yesterday when we started doing the, uh, 
I loved it. I loved the wave. Welcome, Dano. Always wanted to live in the tropics. Look, I ended up living in the tropics. Who knew? I was more looking at Florida. But... <laughs> <laughs> when I was five years old, but <laughs> ended up half a world away. Got all of this cheese get on the spoon over here, I asked you. I was eating cheese late at night. That was it from that pasta we made. Oof, that was good. That was really good. Yeah, that would have been a good one to have done the video. That was really tasty. Simple ingredients too, you know, just really good spices. Yeah, I have a combination with the different seeds too. Like people buy those like seed core or whatever frozen pasta dinner things is like twelve bucks and it's like you make pasta. Can you imagine though having a restaurant like that where we make the make the cheeses there? Yeah, I can. Palomon, Palomon stuff. Oh, make everything right there. We're gonna make you those those angel biscuit cheesy breads with the cheese skirts. The other night, yeah, those were good. Saturday. Saturday. Once I come back in a couple of hours, they probably will have at least doubled in size, and they'll be ready to ready to bake. Yep, then together and. We can even uh, come back and do like uh, how we do our sausage gravy. Mmm. Yep. Let's do another one. Now we'll go in and watch the morning fish. Sounds good.